On today's episode of Survival Dispatch News, we're discussing EMPs once again. Today's video is brought to you by Energy. They're an Idaho-based company that makes some of the most rugged power stations that we've ever laid hands on. They've also won several DOD contracts, which is one heck of an endorsement. On top of which, they have a focus on EMP protection that we have not seen from any other power station manufacturer. Check out the link below for energytech.com if you'd like to learn more. And we're back. We're joined by Nick from It's Just Sharp in Utah. Hey there. Steve from Anything Outdoors with Steve. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And you're also a licensed electrician, correct? I am. Yes. Okay. And and we've had a bunch of exchanges and you clearly know a lot more when it comes to electricity and EMPs than than I do. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the channel and sharing some of your knowledge. So we just did an episode last week on Survival Dispatch News on EMPs. Uh, got a lot of comments, uh, including yourself. And let's just start there and uh, get us started, Steve. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, as you mentioned, my background is as an electrician, and I'm hoping I can clarify some of the details and some overlooked properties of the EMP and how the effects are mitigated on Faraday cages. And so uh, we can kind of break it down to a basic level. Um, my, my wife always says that uh, whenever I start explaining things, I go into too much detail and she quickly loses interest because I, I get too technical. So uh, anytime your eyes glaze over, stop me, let me know. I can clarify. I can rehash out some of the stuff that we're addressing here. Um, so we're going to discuss EMPs in uh, the, the basic uh, subject of it and how to mitigate the the voltage spikes from that. Um, so let's see, uh, the EMP and CMEs. So it depends on what you want to protect for are two different beasts completely. Um, EMP nuclear generated blasts have a very high voltage spike. And now we've got things that are called super EMPs that uh, it's still theoretical. Nobody knows what exactly that may pertain. Um, the threats are up to 200,000 volts per meter. Wow. And yeah, so that, I mean, the basic military standard is 50,000 volts per meter. So that's what they try to protect against. And so there's three waves. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just curious, what would cause one of these super EMPs? Like what would the potential source of that be? That's going to be also a nuclear generated okay. pulse. Yes. So a uh, high atmosphere burst, they send a weapon up into the air, it explodes. And what it starts doing is uh, it, it sheds electrons off the atoms and causes a static electricity in the air. And instead okay. of like a lightning bolt, it's more of a blanket where it just covers everything. And so there's a lot of factors that come into play with this. And we'll try to discuss some of it. I'll Try not to jump around too much and forget some of the stuff because I tend to do that. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> not a problem. Yeah, I can break the EMP pulse down. And I think you guys may have done that on the last episode where you've got the three waves of the EMP pulse the E1, E2, and E3. And E1 is the initial spike. And that's starting at about five nanoseconds. And its duration starts to mitigate off about 150 nanoseconds. So, it's a very short duration pulse. And that's the one that has the highest energy. But um, being that, it's also the hardest to uh, protect against because you've got a high voltage spike that transfers to everything conductive. So all so the power that, lines. Would, would you think of that as something like uh, being close to the epicenter, essentially? The distance from the center of the blast has a huge factor on the voltage. Right. And so we'll discuss that in a little bit too, that essentially uh, distance has a squaring effect to the pressure wave, uh, just like with sound. So for every foot distance, it's got a squaring effect to the decibel range. Okay. And we can cover some equations too, or I, I probably just tell everybody to look them up and I'll tell you what to look up because okay. um, the 
information knowing what to look up is more important than some of the information in itself because then it gives you a greater understanding of what you're actually dealing with makes sense. and there's a lot of information and like i said i'm going to try to keep it as general as possible but i, I can go into depth with some of these as too sure. as well but um so the e1 we already covered five nanoseconds to about 150 nanoseconds the e2 wave uh covers part of that already so it's already starting while the e1 is is um mitigating away uh so the e2 will last up to two seconds and then the e3 wave um i believe that one is about let me i'm trying to think here <laughs> there's a lot of information so that'll last several minutes okay. so so that one has a, a gap between the e2 and e3 so the E2 mitigates after a couple seconds, and then the E3 will start in. And so you've got a little time to deal with that. But uh, there's uh, devices out in the field that people sell that uh, will give you an alert for the E1 to tell you to turn off your main breaker in your house to try and mitigate some of that because the electrical grid is what's affected by the E3. And so everything plugged in gets that spike. So just in your opinion, how effective would those devices be? Uh, I mean, if, if you're right at close to where a nuclear attack is, I'm assuming you wouldn't have enough time probably to react in most circumstances. And, and yeah, the closer you are, the faster this happens. So that's only effective. And, and, you know, I have to look at it as an electronic device itself. Is it protected against the E1 wave by itself? Oh, great point. So, yeah, so you don't know. And so some of these devices that people are selling as EMP shields, you just really don't know until you have that event happen. Because again, the theoretical 200,000 volts per meter, that's huge. I mean, we just don't know what that really means until it happens. So, and I, so I'm, I'm thinking to myself as well that um, there may be some confusion even at the highest levels initially that you know, what just happened, you know, yes. before, before they actually determine it was an EMP. Yeah. Your lights go out. You don't know what's going on. You look at your phone, several seconds have already passed. That E2 wave has already happened. And you look at your cell phone, it's dead. I mean, are you thinking clear enough to go run to your panel, start opening up breakers? Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's where the EMP suppression kind of comes in. Okay. And, um, but, I mean, you think about the the 50,000 volts is what the military standard is, what they try to protect for. You know, over a 100-meter line, you're looking at 5 million volts. And so that in itself, I mean, a simple device like a, a plug-in adapter can have several meters of wire in it. And so those alone are generating high voltages. And it's just a simple transformer. So anything that comes into the primary goes out the secondary. And that fries any device plugged into it. And same with your cell phone. You know, your little four-inch cell phone, it's getting as much as uh, 5,100 volts on a 50,000-volt EMP. So wow. the device itself, and not even including the electronics within, because there's antennas, uh, charging coils inside for the induction chargers that you put them on, all those are receiving a higher voltage because that's a long coil of wire internal. Very the board itself too. Real quick, uh, so if just making sure I understand this correct, you're talking about the E1, E2, E3 waves. And yes. so as you're describing, I was sort of picturing like waves coming on shore from the sea. You have one and then the next one will come and then the next one comes and there's a gap in between. Um, but I guess, is there a certain duration that each lasts? Is that dependent yes. on power or is there a standard that like E1s typically are... 200 milliseconds and E2s are 500 milliseconds, or is there sort of a difference in range here that would pertain to each? It is a standard. Uh, like I said, the E1 is five nanoseconds to 150 nanoseconds. So it's very short time period. And that's mostly based on how the nuclear device works and uh, nuclear devices. And we'll get into this in a little bit too. Uh, they're, they're running off of different frequency, which is what, dictates that wavelength and how long the duration is for each one so that has a great factor to it and that's why solar uh, cmes 
are a completely different beast in themselves. And, and so you're really inducing maybe about 5,000 volts per meter. And uh, it's a, a way different uh, frequency as well. And frequency is a big part of how you mitigate this. So we'll cover that in a little more extent too. Um, but yeah, so they, they do have a general rule by that frequency on how that reacts to to the length and duration of each wave. So is, is there a, a way to create an EMP for us other than a nuclear bomb or? Uh, they've got devices to do so and they're not really uh, accurate is the best way to put that. Um, because the, the, the frequency is the biggest portion of this and we'll discuss why. And that's why, um, some products won't work and others will um you start looking at the military standards and they want a continuous shell all seams that are overlapping have to be a continuous weld to complete no holes and all seams are covered and there's a reason for that and that's the frequency okay um the nuclear emps are running at such a high frequency and that allows it to transfer through any small holes in a Faraday cage. So what typically would work well for a CME is not going to work at all for an EMP. Very and so that's what we have to kind of discuss a little bit. And uh, CMEs are so much easier to, to uh, protect against because you're working with a smaller voltage and a lower frequency. So it's it's a lot easier to to really mitigate those and so simple devices will work well you know the old garbage can that can help against some of that stuff okay yeah so um you know there's i think there's a bunch of information out there saying things you know like using wire mesh and stuff like that on the inside of a room and then when you and i were uh, corresponding offline you said that's not really applicable for emps Yes. Uh, so would that be applicable for a CME potentially, but not a EMP? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I can go into some of the numbers here in a little bit too. Actually, um, let's see, like AM radio, that's about a 10 kilohertz wave. And so that wavelength ends up being 30,000 meters. And so we'll keep everything in meters just to keep the math simple. Okay. Um, so we'll discuss how that wavelength uh is affected by the whole size of of a Faraday cage. Um, so you got AM waves at thirty thousand meters. FM waves are about uh, one megahertz or three hundred meters in length. And so you'll see how those numbers. You've got ten kilohertz, one megahertz. They all keep that three number, and it's actually two point or sorry, two hundred ninety nine meters. So it's it's. I'm just rounding up to three hundred. Make it make it easy. Uh, cell phones when you're making a phone call is about uh, one gigahertz, and so that ends up being uh, thirty centimeters. So now we're working into a wavelength about like that. Okay. And Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. That's typically your two point four gigahertz, and even your microwave. The the frequency inside the microwave to cook your food is is the same two point four gigahertz, and that's twelve and a half centimeters. And so now we're down to there. Uh, 10 gigahertz mm. is 2.9 centimeters. 50 gigahertz is 0.599 centimeters. And 100 gigahertz is uh, 0.299 centimeters or uh, 2.9 millimeters. So uh, you're, yeah, a little tiny hole. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, the, the rule of thumb for frequency on a Faraday cage is one-tenth of the wavelength. So if you've got an EMP pulse that's generating 100 gigahertz, which is roughly what their range is. So we're uh, in, in we're between uh, 10 to 100 gigahertz of frequency is generated from an EMP. And so the rule of thumb being one tenth. So if you're working with a 2.9, one tenth of that is 0.29 millimeter hole is the maximum you're allowed to stop that frequency to mitigate that voltage. So essentially, uh, you know, as the frequency rises, the size of the opening in your Faraday cage just keeps shrinking down. Keep shrinking down, yes. Oh, okay. 
That's and great. so that's where CMEs are so much easier because they're working at a lower frequency. So you can have a five inch hole with a CME and still be protected. So wow. your chain link fence, perfect for CMEs. So it just depends on what you want to prepare for. Now, if you're looking at the nuclear blast, that's a whole different beast. And now you're, you, you might as well figure if it holds water, it can protect against most EMP pulses. So, you know, you're dealing with small holes. So take a container in any direction that if it holds water, it'll be protected. And then we've got a whole bunch of other factors included with that too. But yeah, so there's a whole lot of information, but it looks like you have a question. Well, no, I was just going to say like, it's, there's always an in interesting comparison between electricity and water. You know, I can yeah. remember when I was young, my father saying, you know, that the, the garden hose with a sharp stream is like voltage, whereas yes. the really powerful energy in a river is more like amperage sort of thing. And and I've just, you're not the first electrician I've spoke to who compares things to water. I was actually thinking to myself earlier that the I, I looked up some images of an EMP coming in and how it kind of envelopes things, you know, like an EMP yes. or a Faraday cage or something like that. And it, it's still like water. And then, of course, Nick made a comment with regards to waves of it. It just did. I think it's a good way to visualize, for me at least, uh, the relationship, you know, between all these different things that are, you know, electric. Yeah. And I was kind of referring to an EMP as being more of a blanket effect where it just covers everything. You know, you've got a lightning strike that's localized to one spot. This is everything. So anything conductive within its path will start accumulating this voltage and so you'll start to see things if you're outside metal objects starting to get little lightning strikes off of them as they're increasing this voltage because it's able to jump that air gap Amazing. and so 5,000 volts you can jump a one inch air gap as it starts to build millions it's going to be jumping all over the place so you'll start to get a coronal uh, glow off of some metal objects that are further from the ground until they gain enough electricity that they're starting to jump so it'll look somewhat like a, a Tesla coil as it starts yeah. to spike out electricity through the air and then to the ground. That's actually the visual that I just got. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Were, uh, um, I I spent a little time when I was in college studying sound um, and you'd related it to it earlier. And I had a thought. Um, one of the things we always talked about was this reflectivity in certain materials. Um, yes. And it's something I saw in several of the comments. I was taking some time to read through them and people asking on, okay, what about different kinds of surfaces? Is it reflective in any way? And does, you know, having different layers sort of of protection or different layers of different materials, does that help you? And I was thinking back to uh, my time studying sound and that, you know, if you had a, piece of concrete or a piece of plywood sound transferred through it differently or it didn't over a certain depth um is that similar in your you know size of hole can people put a layer of aluminum or i won't say aluminum uh, tin on a roof that might change the effectiveness of that frequency through it or how thick a material is does that have that same transferability that like sound would have yeah that's a good segue into emp suppression and how that is affected um, so when you're looking at EMP suppression, you're measuring this in decibels of attenuation. Um, the basic rule is for every 20 decibels of attenuation, it'll equal to 10 times less energy in voltage. And uh, you can look this up too. There's uh, the 20 log equation. So all these logarithms, there's a 10 log for, for voltage and a 20 log for voltage and sound pressures. And so the 20 log 10 or the inverse square law and uh, this includes distance as a factor as well. So they typically use that 20 log 10 rule for uh, determining uh, distance for speakers to make sure that they're balanced properly. And so you'll see this a lot in, in large sound setups where, okay, this speaker is 10 feet further from the audience than this one. How many decibels do I have to increase that one speaker to then match audibly the same as the other speaker that's closer? Um, so it, since it's an inverse square law, distance is a big factor. And that's same with EMTs is the distance from that pulse is a huge factor on how much pressure it has. And the reason it's inverse square laws, think of it as a cone. So from the source, it's going to be the highest. And as you're traveling out, that one square becomes nine squares. So now you've got, you know, a larger surface area, but less voltage 
within that surface area. And so the further out, it's got that inverse effect because that keeps growing another layer larger. And um, so you can uh, reference that inverse square law and uh, utilize that in an equation to determine uh, a guesstimated volts per meter and what you want to attenuate it down to and how many decibels are required to attenuate it down to a usable voltage that's not going to damage your devices. And uh, so there's other factors that come into play as well, but uh, um, the less energy on some, yeah, there's some devices that are super sensitive like diodes and transistors that will blow uh, microchips that will blow with just a very minimal voltage. And um, so those require a much uh, more hardened Faraday cage than uh, something like a, a drill motor where you know, yeah, you've got a long coil of wire in here, but uh, the insulation in that coil is rated up to 600 volts. And so it's a little easier to drop that down to a 600 volt instead of half a volt that you're looking for for uh, some of these microchips. And so it doesn't require as much of a Faraday cage to get down to that voltage. But you also have to keep in mind, it's a long length of wire in that motor winding and so now you've got to add in the length of wire and how many volts per meter that actually adds up to so you can bring it down to half a volt but you've got 30 meters of wire and so now you've got 1500 volts that, you know before you know it, it it adds up fast and and so it you, you just have to do the equations and figure out okay this has an insulation property rated up for uh, 600 volts. So how do I drop below that? And that's what you have to look at to bring the decibel rating down to mitigate that voltage. So and um, I have a layman's question for you. Sure. So in the high tech world, I was with the Sun and my, uh, Sun Microsystems Oracle for years. Um, larger customers with larger data centers would have dual power conversion units that would take the the current coming in from the provider and flip it from AC to DC back to AC with a very clean sine wave, you know, and, and a consistent 120 volts. And those devices typically are, you know, fairly expensive, much more expensive than just a UPS, for example. Yes. Would that provide any mitigation or is it going to blow up? Well, that is what they consider an isolation device. And so you're isolating, uh, and you're able to easier clean that frequency and voltage spikes because of that isolation, but it's limited as well. So it's used to dealing with 10, 20, 30 volt spikes where we're looking at hundreds of thousands of volts gotcha. potentially. Okay. And so in, in a perfect world, yes, it'll help. But uh, when we're talking EMPs, I, I'm struggling to find any information on devices that will actually mitigate this properly. Okay. And, you know, I, I was researching um, the, the whole house surge protectors and just your standalone unit surge protector or power strips that have the surge protector built in. And those are using a metal, um, oh, what's it called? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. They're, they're, they're using a, a device inside of it to to mitigate some of that voltage and it'll probably come to me here in a minute but uh, um so but i'm guessing anyway. just i mean um in central florida of course we get some pretty uh violent lightning and thunderstorms yes if you followed our channel all you probably heard me say more than once we're a first world country with a third world power grid and absolutely our particular part of uh, uh, Florida is serviced by FPL, Florida Power and Light. And I don't remember what the charge is, but they will come and, you know, put a so-called surge protector on your meter outside. And if you don't have that surge protector and anything is damaged by anything that comes through the grid, then, you know, they say they're not liable for it. But if you do have that surge protector and something goes down, uh, and I haven't tested this, but they say that they're willing to to replace stuff. And it might be, you know, a, a fabricated lie for all I know. I don't know. But yeah. it it they must have some belief in the product that, you know, it's going to provide some level of mitigation or maybe not. Maybe they're just ripping people off. I don't know. But Yeah, and it does. It does help. 
Um, typical surge protector, the power strips are rated in joules. You'll see those go from anywhere from 400 joules up to 5,100 joules. And that's how many volts it'll dissipate in a second. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's just a, the ability for it to dissipate the spikes of energy. And once it exceeds that, it actually destroys the device. And then it makes anything downstream of it susceptible to that voltage spike. So, so the higher the jewel rating on a surge protector, the better uh, protection it will offer. And so you're looking for a device that will have a high jewel rating for lightning strikes. The closer the lightning strike is to your house, again, the distance, uh, the more energy you need to dissipate at a rapid rate. So and back, so backing up a little bit, then the 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 energy is so significant from an EMP that there's nothing out there. I don't believe so. Uh, the whole house units, they they change it up instead of rating in everything by joules. They're going by how many amps it'll uh, allow it to to dissipate. And so some of the um, like the the EMP guards or whatever they call those devices for the whole house panels, um, they claim up to two hundred thousand amps of uh, uh, current that it can dissipate and and Again, I'm not sure how accurate it is because, yeah. again, it's an electronic device and I don't know its susceptibility to an EMP on the E1 side of it, not even making it to the E3 before it fails. Gotcha. And so not knowing that, I can't say, yes, this one device will help you. Um, I do have search protectors on both my meter base and my house panel and my shop panel, and all three combined will help mitigate uh, cumulatively, uh, any surge that comes in. So uh, each each device, even though it's located further away for a, a far away strike, each one will help mitigate some of that amperage and voltage spikes coming through the line. And so that works great for something small like that. And it'll even work for a CME effect where you're not dealing with as much voltage spike coming in. And um, but really the as you mentioned on your last video, the only surefire way is to have a device that's not plugged into the grid right. and that's that's the only device that will probably survive an emp or some cmes so quick question there somebody made a comment on the last episode that if a, a device had an external power supply so it just for people who don't know what i'm talking about you know you've got a cord that you plug in and then there's a block and then there's a usually a barrel on the other end that you plug into your device and that, that person's comment was is that if something was plugged into the grid and it had an external power supply that the power supply would be toast but the device itself would survive and it seems to me like there's not enough mitigation there for something at the magnitude there of the emp okay yeah, yeah there really isn't okay. and so that external power supply is the same as your transformer packs. Anything with a block like this is a transformer pack. And that's your isolation device. Same with a laptop that's an isolation device. And same with that DC to AC converter you were referring to earlier. Right. It's a energy uh, electricity isolation. Um, the, the downside to this is the coil, primary coil, is transferring the same voltage to the secondary, just not to the same degree. And so when you're transferring back and forth like that on the DC to AC version, you're actually mitigating some of that in each process. Um, that external power supply that they're referring to, uh, we're talking again, thousands of volts and 5,000 volts will jump a one inch gap. So that device having all those components inside a case so small, it'll easily jump voltage from one side to the other so the device itself can be completely fried and it'll still jump across and what the problem is is it's looking for difference in potential and so we'll discuss that in the faraday cage as well um and why you need to insulate the inside of the faraday cage from that difference in potential because whatever you put inside the faraday cage has a difference of potential from what the outside is receiving Okay. And so that device has electricity jumping that gap easily. And it, with 50,000 volts, say it's just a one meter, 50,000 volt spike, it'll easily hop that gap. And there's not a whole lot you can do. And so again, yeah, anything plugged in more than likely is going to be gone. 
And so there's I, not a whole lot you can do about that. <laughs> so I don't mean to jump ahead, but there were also some comments on the last video uh, where people had taken a, a metal, you know, trash can, whatever the case may be. And then they either lined it in rubber or cardboard, yes. something like that. So that's like decreasing the conductivity potential, what you're yes. getting at, but probably would it be enough to, to you know, protect against an E1? Rubber? Yeah. Yes. Rubber? Yes. Cardboard? No. Okay. Uh, cardboard is essentially the same as an air gap. So it'll easily jump right through cardboard, no problem. Uh, right. Rubber is insulated better. Ceramics, again, are really good. Uh, polyethylene is like those plastic buckets. Yeah. If you've got a continuous shell of polyethylene, and that's the key is having a continuous shell of it. So it's got to be a complete container with yep. no holes because that hole is an air gap and it's searching for that difference in potential. And so, so it'll jump like right across. Yeah, something with a threaded lid or, you know, compression. Yeah, yeah that's wow, that's really useful information. Thank you, Steve. Yes. Yeah. Something so like within, a waterproof bag, Ryan, that's set up in rubber. Is that the same idea where you uh, that takes that well, top and rolls it over, makes that watertight if we're going back to that water? Yeah, thing? that's a very thin layer. So we're, we're looking at something that's a little more substantial, maybe 20 mils or greater uh, okay. to, to offer a decent uh, resistance to that electrical jump. And some of those bags uh i know you may not see them but they've got small holes in them high voltage will jump through small holes um, when we're testing electrical equipment we're using what's called a mega and it increases the voltage by a thousand volts or more just to find those little pinholes in insulation wow. and if it if it fails that test then it's a, a fail on that system so we've got to make sure that whenever you're making connections on high voltage things high frequency things that they're completely sealed and so you're doing lots of wraps of electrical tape just to make sure that there's no pinholes for electricity to find a way out and the higher the voltage the easier it is to jump through that little pinhole very interesting okay, thing with the, that. The protective equipment rubber gloves whatever you're using they're rated to a certain voltage just like the, what you were talking about on your last episode uh, bulletproof vest is rated to a certain right. caliber and so those rubber gloves uh, even though it's a layer of rubber and it's insulating, it can only stop so much voltage before it jumps through the glove as well. So some of them are rated 600 volts, maybe up to a thousand volts. And beyond that, it can still find little pinholes within the, the molecule structure of the rubber and find a way out. So yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, I mean, awesome explanation of things, Steve, and and really appreciate the information. Um, I'm assuming, you know, you've got, uh, you know, some stuff already put together for your discussion points. But it, I think kind of like the biggest one would be, well, what's your average person? What, what's the best thing that they can do? Well, the, since we're talking the suppression portion of it, um, the really the, the container that you're using, um, aluminum foil, like what's in your kitchen, uh, that thickness of aluminum foil will have up to about a 90 decibel attenuation. So that's a huge attenuation for aluminum foil. Now, given that attenuations at about two gigahertz. So once you start getting up into the hundred gigahertz, it's less effective. So it's maybe not, uh, able to keep up with that. So it might drop it back down to about 40, uh, decibels of attenuation by the time you get up to those levels. Um, so that frequency has a huge factor portion of this. Um, but uh, Faraday cages are cumulative. So the more layers you have, it's it's a sum of all those layers. So you can have a, a large Faraday box with another Faraday box inside. So each container, uh, it's the sum of all those containers and what they're able to protect against. And so that's when you start to look at... Um, what you really want to protect and keeping in mind the entire electrical grid is going to be affected so there's some things that you're just not going to save so your tvs your air conditioners your furnace you know some of those devices it's just not possible to save them you can keep components of those in a faraday cage and be able to replace those components but even the motor itself will have such a large spike on the windings that it'll probably blow through the insulation and make that motor not usable. 
And so you start to add up all these devices that you have to save in a Faraday cage for the potential of replacing all those. And then you run into the next issue, a follow-up attack. <laughs> so, so you start pulling stuff right. out of your Faraday cages and there's another EMP pulse that goes, you're, you're wiped out. So, wow. so you kind of have to give it some time, like maybe a few weeks before you start really pulling stuff out of your Faraday cages. And because you don't know, I mean, if this is a nuclear attack where they're sending EMPs to disrupt the, the grid, they're not going to just stop at one. They're going to do several. Oh. So, so if that's what your goal is, is to uh, prepare for that type of scenario, you really do have to say, okay, this is not the one and only attack. They're probably going to follow up with more. And so you start maybe waiting before you pull things out. I mean, you can pull some stuff out and make like for communication and talk to other people real quick and then put it back in and close everything back up because there could be a follow-up wave. And same with that wave three, that one starts coming in for several minutes. So you don't want to pull things out right away either because that third wave will hit and start uh, affecting some of those devices as well. Man, that, that's and, awesome information, Steve. Yeah. Um, the So, yeah, being additive for those Faraday cages, that's the biggest help for us. Uh, anybody that wants to save devices, putting them like I the ammo can aspect. I've got a large ammo can. It's about a meter tall. And keep in mind that that meter is also getting the same voltage. And so that's why you have to have that insulation barrier from that can to the device inside. And so you're getting 50,000 volts on the can. Everything inside has a difference of potential. It's a lot high likelihood that it's going to arc through in different portions of that can if it's not insulated. But um, doing things like anti-static bags inside, it not only adds another layer of EMP uh, decibel rating to it, but also helps mitigate some of that to the surface of the of that bag instead of through the item inside of it. And so for every layer like that, where you can have an insulating layer and then another conductive layer, insulating conductive, makes a huge difference. And so it's more than just the thickness of one layer. It's having those multiple layers with insulation in between. Each one kind of brings that voltage around that surface of, of those layers. And so it makes a huge difference on what's being protected. And again, the device that's being protected requires different levels of protection. So your microchips and diodes and transistors, those are the most susceptible to the even small voltages. You know, five volts can take them out. And so that's where you have to start bringing that decibel rating up to, to lower the voltage. And so using that, sorry, using that square. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just thinking in terms, there were some comments and questions previously on this very topic. And I was just thinking to myself, what would be, you know, doable uh, for the average person without breaking the piggy bank. So if we, if we had this, this uh, metal uh, container, ammo can, whatever the case may be, um, that was properly sealed. And then inside of that, we had something that was rubber that was properly sealed. And then we were protecting a ham radio, let's say that was inside yeah. of a Faraday, Faraday bag inside of that. That's, yes. that doesn't sound too unreasonable for the average person to put together. No. And, and really you can, you can use inexpensive materials as long as they're properly sealed, properly conductive between all the gaps, all the seams, um, using something like aluminum tape where you can tape up the seams and make it a continuous uh, product throughout. So okay. using that aluminum foil theory, but you also have to keep in mind it's got to be durable too, because if you poke a pinhole in it or sliding it around on the floor, you're going to tear some of that. And so yeah. you want it to be durable as well. And, um, but sealing up, all those little pinholes is is key to having a proper Faraday cage for the high frequencies, and um, and then multiple layers again. You know that's that's really helpful. Um, but there's different devices that people have talked about using, like microwaves. And a microwave is running about 2.4 gigahertz. That's kind of like the magic number for everything. So you look at this, the mesh on the door of that microwave, and you can see the hole size. And, yeah. and so that's that's effective for that 2.4 gigahertz. 
And, um, but when you start going to the higher frequency, it's no longer effective. So people think, oh, I'm going to put my stuff in a microwave and close the door. It'll be great for a CME, not so good for EMP. Okay. And, and those, that needs to be an understanding when, when what you're wanting to protect, once you understand that it's not protected because that frequency. So it, it again, falls back on what you're trying to prepare for and you know we're not imminent for a nuclear attack but it's a lot closer than what it could have been a few years ago <laughs> so yeah. you know it's yeah. it's looking like you want to start protecting more and more devices and and so that's when you start looking at that list of devices you want to protect and so you want to make a, a list of critical components or critical devices and communication tends to be one uh, power generation, solar panels, um, really a gas generator. If you've got a, an ability to make a room that's EMP proof and you can use uh, inexpensive products like just a foil barrier. I mean, it's this is actually perforated to allow moisture through. But if you do two layers of that or uh, the foam board with the aluminum coating on it, you start adding up layers like that where the exterior has that foam board with taped up seams. Again, you have to tape up those seams, tape up the nail holes, tape up everything. But um, once you do that and have a continuous shell of just foam board, which isn't horribly expensive, you know, you're maybe $20 a sheet for one inch foam and it doesn't have to be super thick foam. Just you're looking at that aluminum layer. It's nice having the added insulation if you're putting it on a structure, but um it's kind of secondhand if you're looking at emp protection so if you had uh you know one or multiple of these uh folding solar panels that you know uh, yeah. typically are used with a portable power station and it wasn't plugged into anything it would still be vulnerable uh there was a person on youtube that had made himself an emp generator and put things in this generator to test. He put in a laptop and and a solar panel and an unplugged solar panel survived his EMP generator. Now, we don't know what voltage that's dealing with, what okay. frequency that's dealing with. So I'd like to be able to say that it could survive, but keep in mind a solar panel is essentially diodes. Yeah. And so yeah. you get a reverse current across those diodes and it takes them out. And so being unplugged is huge. I mean, that's the biggest factor because that length of cord going from one panel to the next, to the next, to your, um, to your uh, charging controller, uh, that length is huge because we're talking more than a meter. Yeah. So 50,000 volts will take out a solar panel. And, um, but the diodes within those solar panels are susceptible to the EMP pulse as well. And, yeah. I would love to be able to say that sure it'll survive, but I really don't have an answer for that, whether or not it actually will. Um, I personally would uh, using inexpensive materials, whether it's foam board or foil wrap or anything like that, uh, making a continuous shell around a structure, put things in that structure in an EMP Faraday bag, whatever it may be that you create inside that structure as well. And, I'd be willing to say um, your outside foam board with the aluminum coating, uh, do the inside with foil wrap. Um, I mean, this is an inexpensive product too. I mean, you can get a, a fairly large roll of it for a few hundred dollars and, and cover a, a small structure really inexpensively that way. And uh, maybe for a $500 investment, have a an eight by eight shed that's completely protected and put your generator in there, put some power tools that are a big one because nobody really thinks about the power tools and, right. and um, different electronics that you don't use daily. And so that's when you start getting into this other issue is daily use items that you don't want to continually open and close these Faraday cages yep. for daily use items. You want them to kind of remain there. So if you have extra devices to put just for that scenario, and that's actually your biggest expense of ha having the extra devices, extra circuit boards and extra parts to replace things that do get destroyed. I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, the tech world where, you know, for, uh, you know, disaster recovery planning, we always preach to people to have backups of your backups. 
you know, absolutely. So, you know, it seems applicable here as well. So how about one of the big shipping containers that's all metal and maybe welding some seams on it and, uh, yeah. Um, holding layers you, inside of it. They, they've all got vents on them for pressure. Uh, so they've got these pressure vents. So it, as it's changing temperatures, it's changing pressure. So, so you kind of have to have some sort of venting still. So when it warms up, it doesn't just pop, <laughs> but you have to close all those vents up and, and maybe doing just a little uh, pressure valve that remains closed until the pressure changes in both directions. So you've got a pressure valve that's usually sealed, but so again, you want to have another cage inside of that. So let's go low tech. I mean, sure. what happens if you dig a hole that's five foot deep and you put your stuff in there and put, put the five you know foot of dirt back on top of it, you know, yeah. where does that, how does that work? Okay. So, so ground, highly conductive ground at, there's there's uh, a way to meter between two ground rods that you drive into the ground and put a meter across and see how conductive it is. If it's down around one ohm, that's highly conductive. So okay. this highly conductive ground uh, will offer about 30 decibels of attenuation. And so you can add that into your equation as well. So, so not enough on its mind, own. What's that? Not enough on its own. Not enough on its own, but you put okay. a metal box underground, you're adding that 30 decibels on top of 40 to 80 decibels and now you're into this 120 decibel range where you can protect against a 200,000 volt per meter emp pulse okay so, i was going to ask you for that guideline so if, okay. if if these you know if if that upper echelon that 200,000 volts is actually you know possible Real. Yeah. yeah i was going to ask what so what level of protection in decibels do we need to get to 120 okay. Yeah, so the equation is every 20 decibels is a 10 factor of reduction. So you're 200,000 decibels with uh, 20 decibels of attenuation. You're now down to 20,000 decibels. And so the next 20 decibels, or sorry, I meant volts, volts per meter. So the next 20 decibels will drop it down another, uh, down to what was that? (laughs) <laughs> 2000 volts yeah. per meter so so at 40 decibels you're down to 2000 volts per meter so it really does have a big factor um on that Faraday cage and how many layers you have too um but ultimately for a 200,000 uh volt per meter EMP you're looking at um what would that be about 2 volts per meter at 80 decibels or 0.2 volts at 120 decibels so so that's what you're looking at is trying to get that number as small as possible. And and then again, keep in mind, there's a coil of wire in here. So that 0.2 volts on uh, one meter length of coil, now you're getting that back up again. But yeah. um, for a lot of the electronics, they probably will survive that 0.2 volts. Um, the military standard being the 50,000 volts, they like to do 80 decibels of attenuation to drop it down to half a volt. To okay. have their equipment survive so they're looking for that half volt spike per meter and keep in mind that is per meter so so right. it's half a volt per meter of any conductive materials within this emp cage so even though you're dropping that around the shell that huge voltage spike you're still getting voltage inside and so that's i i, tr- I would say if you're looking at attenuating a 200,000 volt per meter uh emp pulse look at about 120 decibel attenuation and so we already discussed foil being 90 decibels so two layers of foil you're 180 you bury that foil underground 30 decibels underground and now you're at 120 so you're good to go for 200,000 volts and that'll drop it down to the 0.2 volts and so most items within it will survive and fantastic that's understandable like that's in terms that your average yes. layman like me that can understand yeah. it i know and it's beautiful that it works in powers of tens and twenties like that 20 decibels 10 volt uh 10 times less voltage so it it works out well and same with that frequency you know we were working with a factor of three so for every next level so you're going from 10 to 100 it's it's dropping that tenfold again so so um that increase of frequency is making that whole size that you have to drop down and that whole size is a factor of 10 as well so if your wavelength is 
three millimeters, you have to drop that whole size 10 of one tenth of that. So 0.3. Wow. So it makes all the math pretty easy yeah. and it just works out well, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Anytime you can save me from having to use a calculator is a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Hours of tens, <laughs> all day long. <laughs> so, uh, Steve, do you have, you know, I know you do uh, survival stuff, prepping stuff in, a, in addition to being an electrician. Um, what would your list look like of, of devices that you feel needs to be protected? Yeah, that's that's where it becomes difficult. Um, today's day and age, uh, we kind of take for granted a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so even, you know, you look back 30 years, photos, you know, you, you printed out all your photos, you had film, you took photos on. So all those family photos, they're now all digital. And doing something as simple as putting it on a Blu-ray disc or DVD, this is EMP proof. You can leave it out on the desk drawer. It doesn't matter. Everything's contained within this. As long as you've got a device to read it, then you still have your photos. So mm-hmm. then you're just looking at protecting a, a, a DVD writer or burner or whatever it may be, or a laptop that's got one built in or a computer. And so you build that room, that Faraday cage to protect those devices that can read information. And so information is huge. Uh, books, you know, go back to books instead of everything electronic. Uh, I've got a series of books and I was going to bring one out as a prop, but I kind of ran out of time. But uh, it's essentially how to live the old way of life because people have kind of forgotten that lost art and that lost skill. And, and so the modern day, you don't need it. You're not, you're not practicing it. So that is very important for for really helping you through a situation like this until if things even come back. So if you're looking at an EMP strike being a nuclear attack, you really don't know. And so the entire electrical grid pretty much will be wiped out. The communication grid, same thing. So all that, all that stuff is gone. So you're even looking at um, um, fuel pumps, water supplies, you know, all this stuff is going to be affected and, and, uh, so there's only so much that you can do. You can't protect everything. And so it, it, I read somewhere, I read somewhere that um, both parties, the uni party, whatever you want to call them these days, over the years have proposed legislation to uh, protect the power grid from EMPs and yes. numbers thrown around like five billion dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is is not a yeah. But nobody has actually taken action on that. Correct. There's probably all kinds of political reasons for that. But from a practical standpoint, is is it even a possibility to protect? Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a way to protect the entire grid, but it is expensive. Um, Some of the numbers I was looking at was maybe around the 300 million for a a localized grid. And there are some. I think there was a place in Utah that actually did accomplish that. And I'd have to look it back up because I don't have the information off the top of my head, but there is a place in Utah that actually did have some EMP protection. And I don't know to what level they've got it protected. So that's another question that's kind of up in the air. You don't know how much protection you need for one or how much it's able to withstand. And um, so um, that Faraday cage is huge. Um, having a device that opens and is able to not only quench an electrical arc because it can jump a big gap in air, but if you've got like fuses, they are typically filled with sand to quench that arc. So even on a high amperage arc going through this fuse after it blows the fuse, it's able to quench that arc. And so they're able to include devices like that within a power grid to open up and not allow it to destroy a a transformer before it does. And so that's important. What kind of voltage per meter would your average Faraday bag uh, be able to withstand? Uh, Measured in decibels, uh, your standard Faraday bag, uh, it depends on the bag, of course. And uh, the standard, I think, is about 40 decibels is the insinuation of a Faraday bag. So you put that Faraday bag into another Faraday cage and you start adding that up. So. It, Not it, nearly it, enough on its own, essentially. No, no. And then you see uh, Faraday bags that are made out of uh, a woven mesh metal like this. Mm-hmm. And that'll work for CMEs and it won't work for EMPs. So so that is another thing to make sure that you understand. If you're 
planning to protect against and CMEs do happen and they're more likely I would say than than an EMP but maybe not today <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I mean it's changing daily so <laughs> but I'm under, I'm under the impression that uh you know the average prepper feels that if they buy you know a Faraday bag and throw something in it like a ham radio yeah. that they're covered and it's interesting that it's not it's, it's you need a layered approach you you really do um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I, I look at some of these EMP bags and even like the simple static bags that electronics are shipped in, you mm -hmm. roll up the edge, you've got a good, at least 20 decibels of attenu attenuation in that bag itself. And so that'll help dissipate a lot of the energy around it, but the electronics are still susceptible within that. So it's great for, you know, you're walking around, you build up a static charge, you touch the bag, it dissipates that energy. And so the electronics are still good. But for EMP, would, yeah. would a Mylar bag qualify as the same thing? Yes. Yeah, so you've got a Mylar bag that you can okay. put items in. And again, yeah. you want to insulate the item within it. And even, even just an air gap is helpful. So if you wrap it in fabric, it that acts as an air gap. So that's helpful as long as you've got it within another EMP bag or box or container and then another one around it so each time you do that layering and you have at least one really good insulating layer you're reducing that likelihood of a electrical arc shooting through that device so mylar bags are pretty cheap so i've, I've just absolutely thinking in my yeah. mind you know that you, you you take a ham radio yeah and and you put it in a faraday bag that you put in a mylar bag that you put inside yeah. of an ammo can and you're starting to rack up some decibels now protection. absolutely yeah yeah and and the mylar bag is just as good as any uh emp bag that you buy on the market too so it really is a fairly decent uh resistance to some of that voltage that's really interesting because we get we do some freeze drying and stuff like that yeah same uh, a company just sent us these huge uh, five gallon mylar bags and my wife and i've been scratching our heads thinking what on earth do you put in a five gallon mylar bag well you put it in a five gallon bucket and you fill it full of rice there you go <laughs> yeah yeah because really that's what you're trying to keep out is oxygen for food so right. that's what you're doing is you seal up that five gallon mylar bag inside a five gallon bucket and you really are mitigating that oxygen approach to it and throwing yeah. oxygen absorbers of course but Yes, it, it makes a big difference. <laughs> Man, that, that's absolutely amazing, Steve. Is there anything else you want to add before we, we wrap up here? I mean, this has just been an awesome uh, day at school for me. Uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, we were kind of touching on what to put in and different devices that work well as EMPs, uh, Faraday cages. Simple things like a paint can. You know, as long as you've got that lid that you have to hammer on yeah. at at, uh, at two gigahertz, that offers about uh, 85 decibels of attenuation. Wow. But keep in mind, we're looking at maybe levels higher than two gigahertz. Yeah. So so uh, EMP can be anywhere from 10, 10 gigahertz up to 100 gigahertz. So, okay. so it, it starts reducing that decibel attenuation as well but that can be an added layer and it's inexpensive. So you can put something inside a paint can inside another cage of some sort, another container and just start adding it up. Um, 55 gallon drum with that friction clamp ring that you can open yep. and close that allows you to get into the container easily. I'm looking at two yes. of them out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that's, it's a steel container. So it's not as Ooh. conductive as aluminum, uh, so that's maybe down to around 75 decibels at uh, two gigahertz of of uh, frequency. Um, but I mean, it's helpful. So all those are helpful layers. And so when you start with a large container like that and you start putting a smaller container within it and, you know, propping it up off the bottom. So you've got a decent air gap or a decent um, uh, insulator around it for the next container within you're getting some really high decibels of attenuation with these Faraday cages that will make the items within more than likely to survive. And so uh, some of those layers are really important. That's why it's kind of going towards the room approach because you can get some cheaper materials. And like I was saying, you know, just your aluminum foil 
being about 90 decibels of attenuation at the two gigahertz, that is a really inexpensive material. Uh, copper being higher conductivity will offer even a greater protection. So the conductivity of the item itself that you're using as a Faraday cage makes a big difference. And that's why the 55 gallon drum is a little bit lower than uh, aluminum foil, you know, something simple like that. As you're describing each of these things, I keep thinking back to target hardening. You know, so yes. I had an yeah. office that was broken into many, many years ago, and there was a, quite a bit of uh, equipment that was stolen out of that office. And so the detective that I spoke to at the time, he said, you know, he gave me a whole list of things, said, do all of these things because I'm looking at y'all's neighbors here. They don't have any of this stuff. So the bad guy's going to show up and he's going to look at yours. He's going to see cameras all over the place, bars yes. on the windows, multiple layers at each doorway. So you got a steel door followed by another cage door behind it. And yeah. you're just going to give up and say, I'm going to go take that easy target over there. So I'm just thinking in terms of layering, like target hardening yeah. is kind of a similar principle. And something as simple as uh, a spot for them to hide close to the structure to where if a car comes by, they can hide behind a bush real quick. You know, that makes a big difference too. Yeah, but you're exactly right. It's 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 all those additive layers, keeping things away from your front door like a, a hammer and a shovel so they can easily pry it open makes a difference too. I mean, it's it's an opportunity. So you look around and you see all these opportunities near your house of what you can use to hammer in a door. My wife leaves out these uh, T-post drivers right next to the front door. I'm like, what are you doing? This is a two-handled battering ram. I mean, one blow and you're in. <laughs> but she doesn't think the same way. So so it's, it's nothing to her. It's like, oh, I'm just making it easy for tomorrow so i can just grab it again and go back to work <laughs> it, it's an interesting topic though because you know we have some uh bushes some shrubs around the windows of our house that have these brutal thorns on them and yeah those are great <laughs> there's a type of palm tree that we have in florida called a robolini and they've got spikes on them this long and they're full of poison and they will mess you up and I've put them in front of windows in, in several properties, just little yes. things like that is going to discourage somebody from even looking in the window, let alone trying to break through it. Yeah. And so when you compare that property versus the one that's got the battering ram next to the front door, I'm going there. <laughs> I mean, so, look at them. They're, they're not even cleaning up after themselves. So the likelihood of having easy access to things within the house is going to be even greater. So I have uh, a request, Steve. Uh, sure. I would like to schedule a, a follow-up episode of Survival Dispatch News on this topic of target hardening, because clearly it, it's a you know thing that you have a level of awareness over, and it's an awesome topic. Um, yes. And I agree with you, like the DEFCON level keeps getting worse, but yeah. the chances are still probably higher that somebody's going to break into your house or something along those effects. I, I'd, I'd love to do an episode with you on target hardening, Nick as well. And some of our other guys, I think that's a fascinating topic and, and uh, love some input there. So, okay. Well, and, and it falls right in line with EMP hardening because after an EMP pulse, people are going to start hitting the streets. You know, there's nothing left to do in your house. You're not on your video games anymore. Yeah. You're not watching TV all day long and you're starting to get hungry. So you're going to start going house to house to find out what other people have. And that's very important to keep in mind as well. I'd like um, to give credit where credit's due. And I think it was Chris Weatherman, the angry American, who said to me, we are never more than three missed meals away from anarchy. And absolutely. It, it's one of those comments, you know, somebody makes a comment and it just sticks with you. That one has really yeah. stuck with me. Um, so I just want to remind everybody that your YouTube channel is anything outside with Steve, uh, anything outdoors with Steve and anything outdoors with Steve. I'm going to put that link down in the, the description. If there are things you think that people should, uh, you know, study up on their own, if you don't mind sending us some links, we'll put those in the description as well. Yeah. I think if you just look at some of those, uh, equation factors uh, like the square root factors you know some of those things are easy to look up and it'll give you a really good baseline to to understand what you're looking at for for mitigation but just using those simple rules you you figure it out real fast on what you need to do but so maybe, uh maybe if you don't mind uh maybe if you you could send those to me offline like the, okay. the basic equations that we've covered so i don't make any mistakes i want to make sure. sure that we pass on accurate information to our audience yeah. and uh 
you know, if everybody who's watching this, go check out Steve's channel. Um, if you need to sharpen your knife, make sure you go check out uh, <laughs> Nick's Nick's website. It's just sharp. <laughs> And yeah. uh, appreciate y'all's time coming on here. Yeah. Steve, that would one, just one last thing. I would I would implore people to make a critical list of components that they do want to kind of protect and go over that and see what's what's viable to save. I mean, even simple items like LIFO batteries or lithium batteries, they've got built-in circuitry that people don't think about. Mm. And so components like that that you want to survive an EMP. That's what you're looking at protecting. And and so make a list of what's important, what critical use items you may have in your daily life that you want to survive. I'll be honest. I had not even thought of protecting pictures and whatnot, Steve. I yeah. mean, that wasn't on our list. Uh, it is. I know. I, I'm always kind of oriented family first. And some of those things that you just don't think about that you kind of expect to always be there, gone. Yes. Yeah, so we I don't have backups <laughs> so, so i foresee that we'll probably put an article up on uh, survivaldispatch.com with some suggestions and people can okay. use a checklist I, i'd like to get that up there as well and sure really look forward to discussing target hardening with you and uh, okay. you know we'll, we'll wrap up there for today but really really appreciate you coming on steve that was extremely educational thank you yeah thank you for having me absolutely well hopefully we have you back again soon okay so for everybody watching, uh, check out the description below. There'll be all kinds of extra information down there. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to our channel, please do so. Click the notification bell, comment, share. All those things help with the algorithm. And uh, thank you for following Survival Dispatch News. <laughs>